Welcome to Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, this is our 88th, number 88. So the 88th episode is is uh, on the air and underway. And as you know, we, uh, we like to do this podcast in three parts. The first is talking about general subjects, political subjects that affect the Second Amendment. The next is comments on the gun culture and some of the gun-related content that's out there. And the third is my favorite, which is always questions and answers. So we'll just dive right into this. Uh, First, politics. You know, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, the Biden crime syndicate you know, when they were telling us, it was only only a month ago, over a month ago, they were telling us, oh, you know, this Hunter Biden story is just Russian disinformation. It's just, you know, foreign agents trying to discredit Hunter Biden. And then we find out, of course, that he's been under investigation since 2018. This is a real investigation, a real deal. But the media lied to us because the media is composed of liars. You know, they lie about everything, and they lied to, even if it only swayed a few votes, they will lie like crazy. Uh, They've never investigated voter fraud. They've never investigated any of the the weird things that have happened around the country. You know, I I still think, and, and you can blame the swamp part for this, but how does Trump lose when the Republicans pick up 13 seats in the House of Representatives? And they're, they're poised, we'll see what happens, but they're poised to pick up at least one, if not both of those Senate seats in Georgia. How does this happen? And, and the, only, the only credible answer is, of course, voter fraud, ballot box stuffing. So when somebody tells you, yeah, count every vote, that's because they know that they stuffed the ballot box with votes uh, that, that were no good, you know, that were, that were illegal votes. Uh, for whatever reason. And you think about the sanctity. We fought two world wars to protect democracy, and now we seem to be living in the world's largest banana republic. And, you know, there are some reforms that could happen. The only reforms that I think that that have to happen right away, if we want to be a democracy and not just be, you know, a bullshit country that says we're a democracy, but it's the, the elections are controlled. The three reforms that have to happen is, number one, there has to be term limits in Congress. I I say two terms for a senator, and you could go five or six terms for a congressman since they have to run every two years. So so six terms would give them 12 years. Two terms for a senator would give them 12 years. And I would also say there has to be a cap. Maybe there's a cap of 18 years total. So if you're a congressman and you serve 12 years in the Congress, in the House of Representatives, Then you decide to run for Senate. Hey, you don't get another 12 years. You get one term. That's it. You know, there's just a max number. So if they want to flip back and forth and play that game, hey, there's a max limit there too. The next one is uh, there has to be a moratorium on this insane polling that goes on 30 days before an election. And I think polling should be illegal. Now, campaigns can do their internal polling to see where the battleground states are and all the rest. I'm not not opposed to any of that. I'm opposed to every quack organization coming up with a frickin' poll, and then these polls get thrown around ad nauseum, and most of them are within the margin of error, so it doesn't tell you anything anyway. 
But polling has to stop 30 days before an election because it's an undue influence on what's going on. And uh, that has to stop. The other thing is we have to go in the 24-hour news cycle, we have to have declared editorial time. And what that means is if you're, say, Fox News or MSNBC, before a Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson or somebody comes on, there's a statement. This is an editorial program. This is not a hard news program. This is editorial. And I think that has to be every 15 minutes that that has to be either in a runner across the bottom or or said like a commercial. And that's just so that we can we can start delineating between hard news and all of this kind of editorial news. And maybe this would push some of these organizations back towards hard news a little bit. So those three things have to happen. The other thing that has to happen is obviously Soros and Bloomberg and the rest of these big money jerks that are out there, they have to be curbed. And so to stop Bloomberg from pouring money into a race or to stop Soros from doing it, there has to be some sort of campaign finance reform smarter than what, you know, John McCain was a clown. He was a worthless clown. And the McCain-Feingold law, which was ultimately struck down by the Supreme Court, was just designed to punish the NRA and a few other things. Because he didn't like the NRA. Because John McCain was a liar. John McCain knew, knew that there was no such thing as a gun show loophole. He knew that. But he, he kept using that term and trying to push that as something that was real. He was a liar. He knew that it wasn't real. And he was trying to punish the NRA because the NRA didn't back him unequivocally on all of his little goofy positions that he had. And, and so, you know, McCain was a terrible, a terrible person and a terrible candidate. And, you know, his his uh, finance reform law was was just a way that he was trying to strike back at people. People talk about Donald Trump as being small minded and retaliating. Donald Trump was the the pinnacle of generosity and forgiveness compared to John McCain. So you should you should definitely take that into consideration. So that's that's where we are. I mean, we had a crooked, horrible election, a disgrace to American democracy. You know, uh, one of the other things that has to happen, and you think of all the reforms, this is the most valuable. I can accept the results of any election if I know one thing. And the one thing I have to know is that every vote is cast legally. So when I walk in to my polling place, and actually here in Kansas they do this, I show an ID. And I show an ID to prove who I am, where I live, and that I'm entitled to vote there. Okay? That that's the place I vote and all that. It's a, it's a very good process. So that's how I know there's integrity in those elections. That's how I know there's integrity. So that's, that's the way it goes. Now, I live in the only district in Kansas that has a Democratic representative. And this Sharice Davids is a flake, but her, her area encompasses several liberal areas so consequently uh you know she won the election you don't hear me saying that she rigged an election as far as i know that election is fair and square because everybody had to show id to vote that should be nationwide 
we have to put integrity back in the system so that everybody can accept the results of an election. Um, I don't really personally, and, and it's not that I'm an anti-government person or, or I'm doing anything, but I personally don't accept that this election was fair. I don't accept it because there's no real proof that it was. There's no integrity in there. If, they, if, if, if we had a national voter ID law, and we knew that there was no ballot box stuffing and that the voting machines were all correct and and all these ballots that were floating around everywhere if we knew that that none of that mattered and we had actually a voter verification system and a national voter id law i would accept the results and if it's trump wins trump wins if it's biden wins biden wins but right now we have none of those things and we have all these things that were swaying the election the the crime syndicate uh family thing that biden's got going on with china and everything we that was all suppressed uh we have opinion masquerading as hard news and again fox is actually one of the better ones you know there's no there's no real doubt that tucker carlson is an opinion guy you know that sean hannity is an opinion guy but go to these other ones and there's nothing but opinion people there's nothing but that and and they're absolutely when trump gets not over 90 percent negative press coverage that tells you that something is wrong you know 50 percent i could understand you know because everything seems to break down between 40 and 60 percent somehow but when it's over 90 percent you know there's something radically wrong and you are being you know treated like like you're an idiot and we're being fed this george orwellian 1984 news speak and that has to stop hey another thing that has to stop is a filthy punk in congress named eric swalwell a despicable lying you know piece of garbage gee they found out that i guess he his girl his ex-girlfriend was a chinese spy just like diane feinstein's chauffeur for 20 years was a chinese spy the chinese and trump was the only one who stood up to the chinese the rest of these people are going to kowtow to them because they have been compromised. If we know about this, we know that it has to run deeper. It has to run greater. It has to be a bigger threat than we realize. Tip of the iceberg is what fits in here. The Chinese are infiltrating our government. They are influencing our officials, even pieces of garbage like Swalwell, even pieces of garbage like crazy old Feinstein, who at the age of 87, even the Democrats are saying, gee, Diane's just not with it anymore. Yeah, Diane hasn't been with it for decades, actually. If you look at what she believes and how she acts, um, she, she's, been, she's been off center for, for, for decades but now she's now she's old and, and vulnerable so um it's it's funny how old and vulnerable leaders get get deposed even within political parties and and, and especially foreign like you know Haley Selassie the great lion of of Ethiopia um you know he was he was the guy who you know fought the Italians with spears and was you know very courageous and great 
leader. Well, when he was in his 80s, he was deposed and, you know, basically he was thrown in the trunk of a Volkswagen and driven off the uh, presidential palace. And, and that's kind of what's going to happen to Feinstein. They're going to put her in the trunk of a, of a Volkswagen and drive her out of the Capitol, make her resign and, and, and get rid of her. You know, it's going to be just like that. Going to be just like when Chiang Kai-shek was, you know, finally, I guess somebody kicked his wheelchair down a, down a, uh, a cliff and, and basically they got rid of him, you know. When these people start getting in their 80s, and especially the late 80s, they become vulnerable and somebody comes along and deposes them. And that's what's happening in politics, going to happen in the Democratic Party. They're going to they're gonna take out Feinstein and a few others, and which is good because, you know what, we owe Feinstein one for that crummy crime, 94 crime bill. So I, I hope that she does have to leave in an ignominious, shameful way. All right. So here's actually something that would have come up in Q&A, but I moved it up here because it's really all politics. And it's, what do you think gun controllers will go after to further infringe on, the second, on our Second Amendment rights? And then this is obviously in light of the, the Biden victory, okay? So here, here we go. Um, I can tell you right now, they're going after arm braces and they're going to go after 80% receivers. And personally, I think they are going, it's going to explode in their face. Because number one, arm braces, they've said they're legal. They've let everybody have them. Now they're sick. Then if they try to backtrack and say, well, these are really stocks and they have to be registered under the NFA. Well, not every state allows things to be registered under the NFA. Another weird mistake in our law. But anyway, um, these things are going to happen. Um, they're going to try to take them away. They're going to try to do something. And what's going to happen is these things are just going to get sold after market. You won't see them on the guns being sold anymore unless they're sold as an NFA item. But I think people will put them on. There's so many SBRs out there. There's so many braces out there. I just don't see where it's going to be practical. Plus, the original, the original intent and the original justification was well there are people who are somehow physically not capable of shooting a pistol therefore these braces help you know handicapped people kind of even up the the playing field okay and just like a lot of other things somebody who's seemingly very normal can all can have a prescription for something and, and same thing, you know, will a doctor's prescription for an arm brace be sufficient? You know, I mean, hey, you can't shoot it without this. You need to protect yourself. Therefore, um, hey, you have a condition. You have tennis elbow or you have some sort of weakness in your, your arm and upper body. So can you get a prescription or some sort of medical excuse or reason to have this? Just like people do with medical marijuana, there are people without any maladies at all who just get the prescription so they can have their marijuana. Uh, will this become kind of the same thing or will it just become one of those things that it's just unenforceable because they've allowed so many of them out there for so many years and to try to backtrack. This isn't like bump stocks, you know. Everybody made a big deal about bump stocks and the fact of the matter is there weren't that many bump stocks. You know, you... Most people, most gun people have never seen a buttstock except in pictures. Some have, but most have not.
So this is not a small thing like bump stocks that they can actually kind of control. This is something that's kind of gone way out and beyond that. And uh, I don't see where that's going to happen now or, or happen credibly where people just give them up. If people like them, they'll just attach them to their gun at the range, use it and detach it and go home, I guess. Uh, another another issue is 80% receivers. And the only ones I really know of are AR-15 style receivers, lower receivers. And um, I know 1911 80%ers are out there. Anything else, I'm not really sure if there's other stuff that's out there. Um, I know that there are tubes that have templates on them that you cut them out. You can make a semi-automatic Sten gun, you know, if you get the, the right combination of parts. Not all the the part the surplus parts work you have to get some other parts to make it fire closed bolt and and etc so you know those are the only kind of unfinished receivers i'm really familiar with that people basically get and finish off and what constitutes 80 percent is it weight is it weight compared to a finished receiver this weighs 80 percent of this so or i sh actually i should say it would have to weigh more because you're removing metal so this weighs 20 percent more than a finished one so therefore it's an 80 percent finished receiver i don't know is it the number of number of operations that have been done the number of holes drilled and things like that nobody knows nobody can really quantify what that 80 percent actually is we think tend to think well well 80 percent that's just kind of a swag saying it's it's mostly complete and we have to do some machining to it that's what most people's understanding of an 80 percent receiver is now my my viewpoint is that's that's not going to cut it because somebody else is going to come out the minute they make say an 80 percent receiver is a firearm somebody will come out with a 75 percent receiver that is not that essentially you do the same thing to and voila you have your your you know your personal home-built weapons so uh, your receiver is is finished and, and all that so for them to then go through and say well in order to do that you have to have a manufacturing fire license to manufacture firearms well if it's for your own use the, the law is pretty clear just like the law is for distilling alcohol if it's for your own use you can make up some ungodly amount like 200 gallons a year well it's the same thing if you're if it's for your own use if you're not making it for resale uh, you can you can make it so I think they're gonna go after both of those and I think they're both gonna blow up in their faces um, I think that uh, you know it'll be interesting to see how this plays out but um, with the losses they've taken in the House of Representatives and I think not having firm control of the Senate or even partial control of the Senate, I think you'll see the gun control stuff just kind of drift away and there'll be other issues that, that uh, crop up. And the media will help them with this, just like the media helps them. As we spoke about the drumbeat, you know, all of a sudden gun violence stories become the 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 top of every headline and they beat you to death with it on the 24-hour news they can submerge them and suppress them the same way so uh, understand that's kind of how that that all works okay here's something else that uh, I want to get into and it's I used to say early on in this podcast back in the days when ammo was cheap especially tall ammo and nine millimeter and and a few other calibers 
why would you why would you hand load when you can buy it that cheap you know if, if all you shoot are some of these main calibers especially nine millimeter and that's kind of the model we're going with well the answer is because now nine millimeter is no longer cheap and available and essentially if you kind of want to keep shooting gonna have to figure out a workaround and some people do the workaround by having a stockpile it's like buy 20,000 rounds of nine millimeter when it's cheap okay if most of us are most of us are married or in relationships and that could be a problem you know 20,000 rounds of nine millimeter could be a problem when it comes to storage and hey kind of what's in the those boxes and why do we really need that much again um you know that can all be that that can kind of be a problem um the other problem with it is, is hey, you got twenty thousand rounds. You go out and shoot a hundred rounds. Now you have nineteen thousand nine hundred, nine hundred rounds left. You know, you, there's no way to replenish it. So, your stockpile is just based on your estimate of how long it would have to last. And human nature, kind of being what it is, you're you're actually gonna kind of want to hold on to it, squirrel on to it a little bit. So, does it really? Does that workaround really help you? And the answer is, well, maybe not. You know, maybe maybe if you have 20,000 rounds you shoot 10,000 and then and then stop you know or you go down to where you're only shooting 50 rounds a month or something and hoping it'll last a very very long time uh, another workaround is hand loading and basic simple hand loading equipment is still pretty inexpensive um, the difference between rifle and pistol are pretty pretty stark and and uh pretty real and and the good part about it is pistol rounds generally do not grow okay they don't lengthen so that they need trimming which means a whole lot of work and a whole lot of extra effort is not required to hand load these another beauty is you can get carbide sizing dies which means you don't have to have you don't have to lubricate every case when you put it up into the steel die to resize it um, that's a messy job and that's messy stuff to deal with and it's sticky and it gets everywhere and it gets gets all over um, not having to deal with that is a real bonus and most straight every straight walled pistol cartridge I know of doesn't really have that there are some anomalies of of you know bottleneck pistol cartridges that you just can't have it because it's just a ring that that kind of sizes it down and, and it really even a tapered case like a nine millimeter just kind of just kind of hits it in the tolerance zone there so that you can go ahead and squeeze it down and, and you really don't uh, uh, compromise the case as far as the taper goes but it makes it really nice to reload those so if you can get some equipment on the cheap and you know face it you can find them at yard sales you can find it at gun club swap meets you can find it all kinds of places um, used equipment is a great option if you can't do that then I would go with Lee you know this is all about low cost um, if you there are a lot of expensive reloading machines out there and if you want one of those hey go for it do it but I'm really kind of speaking to the person who doesn't want to hand load doesn't really didn't really see a necessity to do it but now is saying I want to get into hand loading at least on an elementary level so that I can just keep some of my guns going in in times such as these you know and it wasn't that far long ago it was Sandy Hook wasn't that much time before that it was something else you remember when the war on terror started ammunition was drying up because the military was buying everything everything was going into military production um, before that there was 
big one back in the 90s you know i mean it just it happens all the time it seems like it's happening about every four or five years so the next one is coming and so here's what uh here's what i would say buy yourself the press the bullets scrounge up the cases you can find nine millimeter cases on any range you go to people just abandoned it you can just scrounge up but get yourself a thousand cases get yourself a thousand bullets and, and if you look online you can find lead bullets or or you know less commonly the jacketed bullets now i know that the uh, supplier i use missouri bullet company they say they're 10 to 12 weeks behind so if you can afford to wait that long you know just place an order with them for two boxes for about 100 bucks you can no, i think it's 86 dollars with shipping you can get a thousand bullets uh the long pole in the tent is going to be primers if you know somebody who hand loads who might have some extra they're willing to share with you or loan to you and you pay them back later you know that would kind of get you in right now at least with 500 to a thousand rounds of ammo that you ordinarily would not have uh, the mechanics of it with the single stage press are pretty simple you put in a sizing die again use a carbide sizing die you can even buy the individual carbide sizing die from like midway get a lee you know low-end equipment is all going to be lee but it's all functional uh, you basically punch out the old primer resize the case put in a new primer and then you can uh, do one the next thing you do that to all your cases um, basically for the batch you're going to make if you're going to make 250 you do that for 250 cases then you put in another die which will expand the top of the case and put a little bell on it they call it it's it, it expands it out kind of looks like the little miniature blunderbuss thing not not very um it's pretty subtle but it's there and that's so that your bullet will fit into the resized case so you have to have that little bell on there um jacketed bullets require a smaller one than lead bullets and with just a little bit of experimenting you can you'll figure this out just take a bullet and when it kind of starts easy it doesn't have to go all the way in or anything like that but when it starts easy and goes in just enough so that it's not going to shave lead on the side then you're going to be fine and you'll be able to seat your bullets so you put the bell on all the cases then you do the powder charging and there's a couple different ways to go with that one is uh, lee sells a kit of scoops which if you have the right scoop number and they got a they got a whole chart that goes with this but you have the right scoop number and the right powder uh, you fill that scoop and, and it's kind of level at the top and you know you have a certain charge weight of that particular powder and every powder is different and every scoop is going to have a different different uh, capacity so you know you can use that or you can use a a regular um, just powder powder measure which they're they're not that expensive and and again you can you can shop for those sometimes you can find them used sometimes you can find them uh, um, you know on sale and reloading tools haven't gone up like everything else in the shooting industry has so you can um, you can definitely do that if, if you do that you'll need a simple scale Lee sells them they're even uh, simple electronic scales and that's just to calibrate your measure and then you go from there and then seat the bullet as i told you before make sure you have enough bell on the case so that it it'll just start easy and make sure that the um, you're measuring the overall length so you you seat it in correctly and the cartridge is neither too short nor too long and you know voila you have a round and one other step i would say is when you have all the bullets seated that you get what's called the lee factory crimp die and again this is another twenty dollar 
item, maybe even less. I think they, they're actually even less. And you put that in there and that will tighten the very top of the case with the bullet. So where you had that bell will will definitely be you know squeezed back in and that'll keep the bullet from being pushed back into the case when you're uh, loading it in your semi-automatic pistol with revolvers that's usually not a problem the revolvers have just the opposite problem the bullets like if you put six bullets in if you haven't crimped them they'll they'll start to inch out of the case because they're the neck tension is too loose and an auto it works the opposite it pushes it in so you, you definitely want to uh, have a good crimp on the case. It's really no more difficult than that. And it just requires a little bit of experimentation. And you'll you'll have it. I mean, you'll have it. That's for everybody to do that. And, and again, the cost of your equipment is going to be a basic press, a set of dies with perhaps an additional um, expander or, or a sizer, I should say, carbide sizer or or crimp die so you'll have perhaps those two extras the lead dies if you buy them factory fresh they come with a carbide sizer if it's available in the caliber you want so you can you can get all that you can you can uh, essentially get a powder measure get a scale and uh, then all you need is a small place to mount it up and you can mount it on a small table but you'll probably have to put some weight on the table so that when you're uh, indexing your press you know it, it won't won't want to tip or, or wiggle or move the more solid a foundation you can put your press on the better but really with nine millimeter you're not putting a lot of stress on things so that shouldn't be a big deal even people in apartments can do this you know they can mount everything to a um, three-quarter inch piece of plywood and then uh, uh, c-clamp it to you know a a more sturdy table so that's all that's all it and i mean um, a pound of powder which is about thirty dollars high end um, it's got seven thousand grains in it if you're somehow using four grains of powder you can you can do at least fifteen hundred rounds out of a single pound of powder um same thing, the uh, primers are going to be whatever primers are, however you source those. And then, uh, you know, bullets, lead bullets are pretty cheap. I am going to start using the coated bullets because they, uh, they will probably reduce the deposit of lead in the, the barrel. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using those, and I've got some on order. Well, <laughs> it'll be 10 to 12 weeks, though. So we'll see how that all, uh, how that all shakes out. But getting into... Uh, the basics of reloading is something that every shooter should just do. It's either that or you're going to have to either stockpile, which has got its own problems, or you're going to have to just um, stop shooting or shoot a lot less. And, you know, face it, 1,000 rounds, 1,500 rounds, even 2,000 rounds, it will get you through the tough parts. And a single-stage press, that's a lot of work to turn out that many rounds. What I would do is, you know, definitely resize your cases, reprime them, put them into, you know, baggies of lots of 100 or lots of 250. And then when you have uh, powder and bullets, you can just go ahead and load those up. But if the cases are already primed and the, the little bell, the neck has been expanded so it'll accept the bullet, um, you know, you're, you're really going to turn out ammunition very quickly beyond that point. So, um, that's that's how I do it. I do a lot of loading. I have a Dillon machine. I really just leave that set up in 45 ACP anymore, and I do everything else on a 
single stage because uh, um, it's just so much simpler. And the progressive machines are for kind of advanced hobbyist enthusiast, and they have a lot of <laughs> a lot of camming surfaces, a lot of springs, a lot of levers, and 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 all of that has to kind of work together perfectly to to crank out rounds. And once you start getting one of those things going, man, I tell you, every after the first four pulls, every pull of the uh, uh, lever gets you a loaded cartridge. So they're very very nice that way, but they do cost a lot. And you can always upgrade equipment. Equipment can always be upgraded, and you'll always have a need for that single-stage press. So it's not like you're throwing money away um, by buying that initially. And then if you decide you really like it and want to move into one of the larger machines, uh, you can always, a progressive machine, you can always do that. Um, if you're going to go a little higher end into the uh, uh, initial press, a turret press is an excellent option. It actually has a turret on top that you can move around and you can leave your dies in there uh, adjusted. So it's got five or six positions where you can leave dies in. I believe it is uh, Redding. Does Redding make that? The Lyman or Redding. Somebody, somebody makes a turret press. And uh, they're very, very good. They're, they're an improvement over a single stage press. But they, they can be a, little, a lot more costly. So uh, whichever one you want to use, uh, that's, that's fine. But just even the very basic second-hand press um, nothing really ever goes wrong with a reloading press no, it's it just one of those durable pieces of it's a simple very durable piece of equipment so I urge everybody get into reloading get into hand loading you know keep keep yourself in the sport and in uh, uh, in the activity uh, through investing a little bit of work and you'll be surprised you'll learn a lot about your ammunition you'll learn a lot about your guns You'll learn a lot about, you know, just uh, it makes you a bigger expert in everything. And that's that's really very, very cool. Okay, here is another, it's not really a question, but it's what are the best buys in the current market for self-defense? And I'm just going to say home defense. Uh, there are still inexpensive pump shotguns out there, whether they're new or used. Um, I would go after one of those two and three quarter inch 12 gauge. People don't really like those for hunting anymore um, for a lot of reasons. And a lot of these have been brought in or, or, you know, kind of the cheap imports from one is China and the other is Turkey. I think they make, they kind of make these very basic pump guns that are, uh, they, they used to be dirt cheap, you know, 140, 150 bucks. There are a lot more now but they're still under 300 bucks get that the ammunition the, the key to this is you can buy all the guns you want if you don't have any ammunition you're hosed so but you can still get 12 gauge kind of field loads um, just buy the largest shot you can but even seven and a half or eight at uh, home defense ranges is going to be very very lethal so um, they're, they're good choices and that that kind of ammunition is still on the shelves other best buys out there, I would say that as a rule, anything selling at MSRP or higher is a bad buy. And bad being a very subjective term. Um, if you want it and you want to pay for it, it's there. I'll, I'll use the new Colt Python as an example. Um, they seem to be selling about 500 bucks above MSRP. I would not buy one simply for that. 
Um, the, the problem is at a certain point the market will saturate, the demand will go down and stabilize, and then people will be buying them at MSRP. So you're already going to be $500 behind. So it's better to wait. If, you, if you're dying for one, it's better to wait. The prices will come down as the market saturates. And the model for this was a Smith & Wesson Model 29. Um, when Dirty Harry came out and for years afterwards, uh, you couldn't find one, couldn't get one. Everybody wanted one, and people were paying outrageous prices for them. Once that kind of cooled off, they went down to MSRP, and then they were selling just like any other gun. You know, that's the used examples were were going at the market price and, and everything else, and, and it was not an inflated price based on want. Right now, there are a lot of guns that are selling above MSRP simply because of the demand is so high and also because of the want. And the Colt Python is probably a combination of both of those. So I think uh, those are those are not good buys. Um, used guns can still be a good buy, um, depending when and where you are. Everything from estates to to other places are are definitely definitely well worth checking out. So um, you know you got to know what you're buying and and know what know what things are. But the nice part about that is that you can you can usually pick up some nice accessories like scopes and a few other things that. You either pay a nominal cost over the firearm or they just kind of throw it in as a package deal and you, you kind of get that. So those are the those are really the best buys I see out there. Uh, there's still the, you know, the good little imports are coming in, trickles here and there. Um, I, would, I would say that, uh, you know, you can get a good functional firearm still pretty reasonably. And uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but, uh, you know, I saw, a, hard to get ammo for, but I saw a 9mm Largo Star Model A for 350 bucks. I mean, for a handgun, that's, that's pretty good, but the, the real key on that is um, don't buy a gun that you cannot readily source ammo for. And that's becoming a lot of guns right now. Right now, that's a lot of guns. And there's some guns you can source ammo for, but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. Uh, there's a big difference between $200 a case for a thousand rounds and 600. I I was just I was just on a website and they said nine millimeter Makarova ammo in stock. So out of curiosity, I looked, and they were selling it by the case, no, nothing smaller, and it was $699, 699 a case. For, and this was Barnall. This wasn't some uh, really kind of high-end manufacturer. This is standard Warsaw Pact style military ammunition, steel cased, and they wanted six ninety-nine. And then on on top of that, the bastards had the audacity to charge like thirty or forty dollars shipping on top of this outrageous price. Um, for the ammo. It's getting to be where a case of ammo is rivaling the cost of a firearm. Uh, you know, that never used to be the case. Kind of the way scopes on PRS rifles kind of overtook, you know, you can you can have a $2,000 rifle with a $3,000 scope. Now, apparently, you can have a $600 9mm with a $700 case of ammo. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's outrageous. And keep track of these guys who are doing the price gouging.
keep track of them and remember who they are and then when you make a choice when things loosen up uh, you may choose to go with someone else just saying just saying uh, there are a lot of good vendors out there trying to keep up and trying to still produce their product and haven't jacked up the prices Missouri Bullet Company being one so you know the people who are who are honestly trying and and uh, um, helping alleviate the situation are a lot better than the price gougers and you know I've heard all the supply and demand arguments and frankly they can they can forget it I mean they can just forget it um, there is there is such a thing as panic buying and price gouging and and uh, you saw it with toilet paper and we've been seeing it with ammunition now for for quite a while how much longer do I think this is gonna last um, I think we're in for another six hard months. I think we're in for another six hard months, and then things will start to get better. I think by the time the end of May, beginning of June rolls around, I think we're going to be, you're going to start seeing a few more things. Maybe you'll see stuff in stores that's not, um, you know, that can actually stay on the shelves. You'll start to see the rifle and pistol ammo come back. Uh, popular calibers may take a little longer. And some of the obscure ones may take a lot longer because they're just simply not going to make it. You know, they're just companies right now aren't making 38 Smith and Wesson. They're not making um, 3840. They're not making 32 Smith and Wesson long. I mean, they're not making these things for a reason because they're they're put, putting all their capacity into the most popular rounds, which are nine millimeter, five five six rifle. And, and probably a few others, you know, probably a few others. They're putting they're putting it all into that. They're putting it all into that. So they can, you know, they can turn around and make some make some money. Even uh, Missouri Bullet Company is not making. They they've narrowed their product line to what people are buying like crazy, and that's nine millimeter and and a few other things. Rifles I don't know about, but um, definitely they've. You know, 45, 38, 9 millimeter. The old standbys are are there. And if you want to get the scope of how big this is, you know, the last big buyout was Sandy Hook, and we're from the industry. They're saying that it's basically the demand is up 90 percent over the peak demand of Sandy Hook. So it's it's up 200 percent from normal times. So it's two to two and a half times greater, and that's why nothing is available. And what has fueled that? At first, it was kind of COVID. Everybody thought, hey, pandemic, you know, and it's best to buy up a little bit of ammo here and there. And things were still kind of available first few weeks. Then when the George Floyd thing hit and people started seeing Antifa on the streets, burning, looting, stealing, you know, grabbing people and beating them up because of their race, every, all this kind of stuff that was going on, all of this stuff, uh, that that fueled just it exponentially got worse exponentially, and uh, same thing with the uh, St. Louis couple. I mean, shoot, everybody saw that. I mean, hey, a bunch of looters come beating down the uh, the gate to the uh, to the wall that's surrounding your your neighborhood, and they come through and and basically you know the effective tool that kept them from doing anything bad was a guy with an AR-15 and a 30-shot magazine. 
everybody who looks at that gets it. And that's one of the reasons the anti-gunners tried to tried to whip all this up. Same thing with the Kenosha kid. I mean, face it, he he basically was mixing it. He was outnumbered in every one of those those fights, and and effectively the AR-15 probably saved his life. We'll see how this all turns out in court. I'm sure it'll be a a drama and, and this that and the other thing. But you know, the truth of the matter is that probably saved his life. So, you know, we're rolling and rolling through this. And, you know, John Q. Public, who even if he's only got a 38 revolver and maybe a 12 gauge or maybe a hunting rifle or maybe nothing else other than a 38 revolver, hey, when he sees, when he sees ammo, he's going to buy it. And that's what, that's what drove all this out of control. Plus, there were a lot of people who... They shoot nine mil, you know, the nine millimeters, the new 38 special in many ways. So a guy could have a nine millimeter in his in his uh, drawer, and he buys more ammo than he normally would. He normally probably wouldn't buy any, but he decides he probably needs more than just the three quarters of a box that he has. So, you know, all this stuff flew off the shelves. COVID shut down a lot of factories. You know, you would think, well, they would just ramp up production because that's what an economic model is supposed to do. You know, demand increases, you increase the supply, and and there you go. Well, we, we got into some other models where COVID closed down and restricted some of the production, and then all of a sudden, I think there's also been some profit-taking where greed has taken over, and they said, hey, let the price rise. Why should we incur the cost of ramping up anything when we can get more money for it? And uh, we'll see how that strategy works. I think that's going to blow up in their faces. So that's where we are. So here's my favorite part, and we've got a few few questions this time. Okay, <laughs> and this is, the, this is my favorite thing. What is the best source for primers? Well, I, I think I said it earlier, um, probably networking and finding somebody who's willing to lend lease you some um, for future payback, or maybe maybe somebody will sell you some. Um, that's probably the best. I haven't seen any for sale. I fully expect, though, that um, some of the factories, I know Wolf has sold primers in the past, and I... And I know there were some that even were coming from, you know, Bosnia, you know, the, the place that 20 years ago was a mess. Well, now I guess they've learned to make stuff. So, you know, you, you're going to find it. Maybe it'll be overseas manufactured. But, um, you know, if that stuff hits the uh, hits the shelves, I wouldn't hesitate to, to grab it and use it. But right now you're probably looking at networking uh, uh, with people around who you know hand load and may have, may have surplus. Because there were a lot of people who would buy you know, a hundred thousand primers and, and face it, that's probably a lot more than they need and they may be willing to part with some. So that's about the best suggestion I can give you as far as where are the primers. Okay, here's the next one. Does dry firing hurt guns? And the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, older guns, probably yes, because they were never designed to be dry fired or they don't have the the materials in the firing pins and some of the other uh, uh, components that that make that good. Um, 
one big example that comes to mind is the Czech um, CZ-52 pistol. They, they specifically say, don't dry fire that. You can break the firing pin. You know, they, they invented things called snap caps, which are dummy cartridges that essentially have a uh, padded area where the uh, firing pin would hit the primer. Those are always good to use. A lot of modern pistols, though, are, are made to such a standard that dry firing does not really hurt them. Uh, the ones that are hurt are 22 long rifles because it's a rimfire, and of course the hammer or the striker hits the rim right at the rim of the chamber, and so you can put a burr in there if you, uh, um, you know, dry fire it a lot. So the best thing to do is use an empty, um, a spent cartridge case and slip it in there. You can even take a Take a felt pen and, and color it all red or something so you know that it's it's there. But even just having that little bit of of uh, cushioning in there will will uh, make sure that the firing pin and the edge of the chamber don't get damaged. Okay, our next question, and this is a gotcha. When you were talking about nine millimeter nineteen elevens, you didn't mention star pistols. Is there a reason for that? Well, the reason was I forgot because when I get talking. I was really more focused on how the the Browning High Power is very similar to a 1911. There there are of course differences, but if you want a nine millimeter 1911, the best one is a Browning High Power. <laughs> it's that dovetails into you know what is the most accurate 44 Magnum revolver? Well, it's a Desert Eagle semi-automatic pistol. It just is. So you but the uh the Browning High Power is a great design, a great pistol. But the Star pistols are very innovative, very well made. Uh the, for years the Star PD was very popular with undercover and as a backup weapon for police. Uh, it was 45 ACP, you know, so it's a powerful cartridge, small gun, well made, durable, reliable. 1911 design that people were very, very used to. So it's a, it's an excellent excellent uh, pistol to to use and and the other Star military guns the BK BKM Star Super Super B and and uh, Super A those were all great guns those were all great guns um, some of them were the Super A uh, you know nine millimeter Largo which is an obsolete kind of a cartridge reminiscent of the old 38 ACP for anybody who can remember back that far the precursor of the 38 Super but they were very reliable very well made and they actually have some innovations uh, the takedown lever on the Star Model A is probably one of the coolest you just flip the thing over and the pistol comes apart it's pretty awesome um, those, those are all excellent pistols so the Star pistols if you can find one used they are good solid pistols and they definitely merit some consideration if you can of course uh, get the ammo for them you know one of the one of the old enduring myths and again we got to do another podcast just on bs myths that are around but is that star pistols would take nine millimeter luger nine millimeter largo 380 38 super you know they said that about the astras also and it's functionally not true what is actually true is that the rim diameters within specifications and within manufacturing tolerances of 38 Super will sometimes allow it to chamber into a 9mm Largo pistol 
that's very foolhardy. Don't ever do it. Um, I think it's a bad, bad, bad practice. Um, I don't know. I've heard that an Astra 400, you know, kind of hit and miss will chamber 9mm Parabellum ammunition. I find it kind of hard to believe because of the taper of the 9mm case. But, hey, you never know. Everything is manufactured with tolerances. And it can be a little bit larger, a little bit smaller, a little bit bigger, a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. So all these things kind of can stack up together and allow something to happen that you normally would not think would happen, which is chambering a completely different round. I remember there was a... It was a foolish thing in guns and ammo, you know. There's always this fascination of will my gun take more than one kind of ammo, which I always think is kind of ridiculous. It's more trouble than it's worth. But uh, they were firing 38 Super out of, of all things, a Colt Python, something no one would ever do today. And, uh, you know, they were like, hey, this is good, and it shoots accurate, and it's fine, and that, and that. Well, the fact of the matter is, that was probably fine because the 38 Super is not as powerful as a 357 Magnum. But the fact of the matter is that that little semi-rim on the case is not a great... Um, that could be a little bit too small to to actually stop at the, uh, um, at the end of the cylinder where it's supposed to. And, you know, you might not... You might get a uh, misfire or... Or something, so I would never do anything like that. And the other, the other thing was, 38 Super was always at least as expensive as 357 Magnum, and and certainly more expensive than 38 Special. So why would you really want to do that? You know, it's hard to think of an emergency situation where, where that would indeed be needed or be the case. So that's it for questions, and this is it for another edition of Old School Guns, our 88th episode. Remember, you can always um, email me questions at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them for me on Podbean. Uh, um, that's our primary carrier. I always see the comments there, so go ahead and uh, lay it on us there, and we'll, uh, we'll certainly get it. So anyway, and we will, of course, answer it in the next podcast. So, there we are. Another edition of Old School Gun in the Books. This is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>